You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. We've been, we've been living in Ephesians and we're still there. If you have your Bibles with you, you need to get them out. We're going right to the text. No introduction. If, you've, if, you, if, you, if you are sitting there thinking to yourself, Ephesians, what's going on in Ephesians? Then you've been missing the last couple of weeks. You need, to, you need to either go online you know, and, and, and listen or, or pull out your study Bible and read the introduction. But no more introductions. We're just digging in today. Is that okay? So Brad, last week, he was in Ephesians chapter four, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish that chapter today. The Apostle Paul gives us really just some strong suggestions, maybe even commands for the people of God, for the church. And these are the things that we're gonna discuss today. So Ephesians chapter four, I'm gonna begin reading in verse 25, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, okay? So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors. If you, you're gonna feel like you're drinking through a water hose today. I mean, even this first sentence, it's like, oh man, so much there. But I've, we're reading all of these, so just hang on tight. Let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. That has also been translated many times in your anger, do not sin, right? Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need that your words may give grace to those who hear. What a convicting line, huh? That your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and, and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Jason, I am gonna move on, but I wonder if you would just go back to the very beginning of the text. I wanna read that first verse again. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another for we are members of one another. This is the second half of verse 25. The question that has been compelling my, my study and thoughts this week is the question, what if we all actually believed and lived the second half of verse 25? What if we all actually believed that we are members of one another? that we are inseparable from one another, that we desperately need one another. Paul says we're members of one another. I think sometimes we may think to ourselves, I'm not sure I wanna be members with them. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that's just me. Maybe you never feel that way. 
I don't know if I want to be members with them. You know, are, are, am I members with, with them, you know? Well, there, there, there is a group of people in my own life that I know without a shadow of a doubt that I'm members of them and they're members of me. And that's my immediate nuclear family. My daughters and my wife are people of whom I am convinced that I'm a member of them and they're members of me. We're part of the same nuclear family unit. Our bonds are tight because we're a family, right? And, and I'm, I believe that I'm bound to them by a genetic code, by a biological covenant. And because I believe that I'm so tightly bound to them that I believe that I'm members of them, I am. And I live in a particular way toward them because I understand myself to be completely bound up in them. When I look down at the future of my life, do you know who I, do you know who I imagine to myself that I want to be at my deathbed and, and to have a good relationship with? My kids, you know? I can, I can imagine that. This, isn't, this is not hard for me to convince you of this idea that I'm members of my family and my family is members of me, right? Yet, yet, that's a nicer way than saying, but, you know, yet in the New, the New Testament actually doesn't lift up the nuclear family uh, as the relationships that ought to be fought for the most or those that are, be, to be, are those relationships that are those that are uh, to be fought for the most or preserved. Now, Paul does in Ephesians later, he exhorts children to honor their father and mother, reminding them that in the Old Testament code, that's the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. And he does say to parents, he, goes, he says to parents, parents, don't exasperate your children. And he definitely addresses issues of the nuclear family, particularly in this letter to the Ephesians. But did you know that Jesus actually goes so far as to say that anyone who would not hate the members of their nuclear family would not be fit to follow him? It's kind of weird, you know? And you might be thinking to yourself, why are you starting the sermon on Ephesians by lifting up this very awkward passage of Jesus where he tells his disciples they need to be ready to hate the members of their nuclear family? Well, here's why. To understand Paul's teaching here, all that I'm gonna say today here in Ephesians chapter four, we need to try to grasp the seriousness with which Paul is trying to tell the Ephesians to embrace their relationships with the church as those relationships that are the ones worth building a life around. Did you hear me? Paul is trying to communicate to the Ephesian church. He's trying to, to challenge them to embrace the relationships within the church as those relationships worth building a life around. Paul's trying to help the early Ephesian church understand the, rela the relational revolution that Jesus came to bring here on earth. And I read a little bit from Ephesians chapter two earlier in the service to give you some context of that. Paul really believes this, that Jesus in proclaiming the kingdom of God and it coming to earth, that he was proclaiming a radical redefini redefinition or redefining of relationships. The church following Jesus was ultimately a redefinition of community. It was a revolution of community. 
Jesus came teaching that neither race nor economic status nor nationality nor either nuclear family ties were the key to being called a a child of God. The key to being born of God, according to Jesus, was confessing him as Lord and following in his ways, right? And he's teaching this to, and Jesus was a Jew, and he's teaching this radical teaching to people who understood themselves to be God's chosen people, God's chosen race, because of their biology, because of their genetic predisposition. They were children of Abraham, right? So, so Jesus, he comes teaching this strong teaching and his followers, his disciples revolutionized the world by teaching that in the church, we are all one. This is the baseline of Christian community and Christian ethics, that we are all one, that we're all bound up in one another, that we are members of one another. It is in the church that we find our identity and meaning for living it is in the church that, that we find sincere purpose. It is in Christian community, it is Christian community that ought, that ought to orient our lives and give us meaning and purpose for living. And in this little passage in Ephesians chapter four, Paul gives us several keys then to unlocking the fullness of this Christian community. Now I want you to know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is a six point sermon. And it's not gonna be like really long six points. If you have lunch plans, you can keep them. You don't need to get out your cell phone and text people. It's, we're gonna be fine. I'm gonna gonna go through Paul's different points that he says here at the end of Ephesians for giving clues for how we ought to do Christian community. But I wanna say something before before I tell you what Paul says. I'm not bashing the church today. I'm not standing up here saying, you know what, you guys, we've been getting this wrong for 2,000 years. That is not the point of the sermon today. It's actually the opposite. Somebody asked me in the back, are you gonna give them fire today? I said, actually, no, no. If you leave today uh, thinking that the church is a joke of an institution, then I've not done what I feel called to do today. I want you to know that, that there are people in this room that have experienced the sweetness and the sincerity of what I'm going to talk about. I have experienced the sweetness and transformation that takes place because of Christian community. I had great biological parents, I praise God for them, but they're not, they're not the only uh, pillars of my faith. It was the church that transformed my life, that gave me purpose and meaning, that called me out, that defined my identity. And honestly, parents, if you're raising your own children, I hope that you will immerse them in the life of the church so that you won't be the only people speaking kind of in this dark world, speaking light and life to them, right? I mean, that's the hope of the church, right? The church is an amazing, amazing thing. Yet, if I am critiquing the church, it, it may be because in some senses we've lost our way. And I, I wanna talk about some of those, those issues, you know, maybe personally, corporately, you decide. But I'm, we're lifting up the church today. We're talking about the beauty of the body of Christ and what it means to be a member, what it means to belong to one another. So Paul tells us these things, six points. Here we go, number one, back in verse 25. The first point is speak the truth, speak the truth. So then putting away falsehood, let, us, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors. 
He says, speak the truth. The truth is very difficult these days. And part of the reason, part of the reason that it's difficult is because we live in an international internet-driven world. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, okay? I'm not a flaming conservative. I'm not a flaming liberal or whatever you, this is not a political talk right now, okay? I'm being sincere. But we, we, have a, we have a problem in our world today because we have voices that are so readily accessible to us that are not close to us in proximity. One of the things that was interesting to me last March, you know, at the, the beginning of COVID, the COVID season, was just the dynamic that a majority of the news that we were all getting was coming from Los Angeles and New York and then a little bit from Chicago. Why? Because in our society, those are the places where, you know, a lot of, a lot of the money resides and where most of the, the top journalism is and this type of thing, right? Well, the news sources that we're reading, as true as they may be or as false as you want to caricature them to be, what they weren't talking about was what was happening immediately in Lima, Ohio. And this was something that was actually really troubling to me is that our reliance on the internet, on kind of mass media, media provided us with an inability to discern in our local context what was really going on here. And sometimes I think that it still prevents us from trying to discern what's actually going on immediately right here. The best truth, this is worth writing down. The best truth is not the stuff that you hear from a second party from somebody else about some, some other place. The best truth that you can get your hands on is that which is verified in a local context, in a local community. By outsourcing our news, but even by outsourcing, uh, you know, we used to have, you know, mercantiles, local groceries and this type of thing, right? Amazon's front of the world right now. I'm not anti-Amazon, okay? This is not a political thing, I promise. But the problem with, with, with the globalization and the situation that we're in is we have a really difficult time discerning what's going on. We're, we are listening more, get this, we're listening more to the voices of people riding in New York than we are to our neighbors. How many conversations have you had with your next door neighbor this last week? How many times have you gone on your news app on your phone, right? That's the point, you know? I mean, we, have, we just have a very difficult time with the truth. Now, I wanna say to you, speak the truth. And this sermon is not just all about the truth. I actually felt checked in my spirit. Don't just stop there, you gotta move on. But we have got to redefine for this generation coming out of COVID, how to have conversations of truth, how to figure out how to discern the truth. And the church is the institution, is the place where the spirit of God speaks, and we've gotta be in conversation with each other. We've gotta be defining what truth means here and now. Not that what's going on in the world, other places in the world doesn't matter, but it ought not to completely control our lives, you know, or, or motivate everything that we do from the moment we wake up in the morning, right? Truth is so difficult in these days. Am I far off? If, if there's one person that agrees, would you say amen, somebody? Okay, okay. Really, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to um, add to the, to the chasm, the disparity, the polarity, because it's, it's, you know, it's rampant here. I just am, am I'm aware that we have a difficult time with the truth. Number two, in your anger, do not sin. You know, Paul says, in your anger, do not set sin, and so he implies you're going to be angry. Paul does not say here, it's a sin to be angry. Did you get that? Paul doesn't say it's a sin to be angry. He says, in your anger, don't sin. Oftentimes when I sit down with young people, I ask them the question, 
what makes you angry? Or what are you angry about? Oftentimes, when a young person expresses what they're angry about, it demonstrates an element of their character. Often it's goodness. Young people are often angry about injustices in the world. And I often say to young people, don't lose your fire. Don't lose your anger, right? Let it motivate you for good in the world. Anger can actually be leveraged for good in the world, right? Anger about the injustice of slavery led us to the abolition of slavery, right? Angry about the, anger about the recognition of what was going on at the Holocaust led the world to band together, right? To come against the Third Reich. I mean, anger can be a very good mobilizing force, but Paul says in your anger, do not sin. Do you, know it's, do you know when it's easiest for me in this phase of my life to sin when I'm angry? In disciplining my children. You know what I've tried to resolve? I say try to resolve because I don't know that I've perfected what I'm working toward here. But I've resolved to not discipline my children while I'm angry. Because in the heat of the moment, I can do things that I'm going to regret later. One of, the, one of the things that is most troubling to me about the COVID situation is I think that many individuals have made very drastic decisions impulsively in the heat of their anger. I think what the reason that Paul brings this line up here in this passage to the Ephesian church is that he, essentially what he's saying is since we are connected to one another inseparably in the church, we recognize that we don't want to do things that would forever strain our relationships for the sake of the heat of the moment. Did you hear me? If we really belong to one another, the way we're going to live is we're not going to do things that would forever strain our relationships for the sake of the heat of the moment. This teaching from Paul has actually renewed my love for the church. Paul, or Paul, Doug and Brad have both in, in times over the last couple of weeks said, said things about the difficulty of being a pastor in the time, in, in this age in which we're living. And I, and I would agree to a certain degree that there have, been, there have been moments of great angst and great frustration. Uh, there was one particular several months back where I, in my youth, I, I, I had this thought. I said, I'm just, I'm just leaving. I'm leaving it all. Have you ever had that thought? Married people, have you ever had that thought? I'm leaving. You ever had that thought? Oh, be honest with yourself. You ever had that thought about your job? <laughs> you ever had that thought about your kids? You know what? I'm leaving. I'm leaving you here. I'm leaving. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you ever had that thought? I called one of, my, one of my trusted friends. And I said to this friend, I said, this is, and this person that I called is, is a pillar of faithfulness, of godliness, someone who has spoken truth to me several really meaningful times in my life. And I called this friend looking for some sort of reaction. And I said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving everything. I'm leaving Lima, I'm leaving the church, I'm leaving ministry, I'm just leaving it all. Do you know what my friend said to me? Okay. <laughs> Hope that goes well for you. That was it, that was it. Do you know what I felt in the tone of his voice? You too? Really? Seriously? You too? 
it was, it, was, it, was, it was the most convicting conversation I've had where the person speaking wasn't saying anything convicting. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I realized, I realized, you know, there is no place that you're going to go. There is no relationship that you're gonna have in your life where you're not gonna be frustrated, where you're not gonna sense emotional tension, where there's not gonna be friction. Some of you married people need to hear this right now. You think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It is not. I'm telling you right now, it is not greener on the other side of the fence. And you can live in kind of fairy tale, fairy tale world and try to convince yourself that so you can live with yourself, but it's not, all right? In your anger, don't sin. Don't break your covenant. Don't break your bond to one another that you've entered into. We desperately need each other and we need to talk to each other with the gentleness and care as if we really believe that we're going to be at each other's deathbed, that we are going to be connected to each other for life. You know, I just want you to know, I don't want you to be anxious about, uh, some of you may be thinking to yourself, oh, so you didn't leave, <laughs> you know, but, there may, but, but really, I, you, don't need to be, you, don't need to be, you don't need to be anxious. Uh, I, I, just, I just wanted to kind of give an example of really just the consternation and the frustration in this season, but one of the things that's been forged in me is godly character because I'm realizing left and right everywhere, people are losing their minds. People are just allowing themselves to get angry, to fly off the handle, to make rash decisions that they regret later. In your anger, do not sin. Do not sin. You got that one, number two? You're thinking to yourself, how in the world are we gonna make it through six before lunchtime? Work honestly with your hands. Number three, work honestly with your hands. Paul says in this passage, for people in the church who are stealing, they need to no longer steal, but they need to work honestly with their hands. Do you know what a mooch is? You're giggling. You must know, this is a real word. Word Mooch is a real word. I looked it up this week just to make sure because I had a feeling of what it was. Mooch, a mooch noun, is someone who takes advantage of the generosity of others without contributing much on their own. That's what a mooch is. And to mooch, the verb, is to take advantage of someone's generosity while not you know, contributing much on your own, right? You know what we have in the church? Mooches. That's plural of mooch. <laughs> it's not mooshy or mooshy, it's mooches. We have mooches. Do you know why we have mooches in the church? Because the church is an institution of generosity. The church is an institution of charity. And the person that we follow he was taken advantage of to the point of his own death, <laughs> death on a cross, you know? Uh, there are some people that, um, that really get angry about people in the church kind of getting taken advantage of. And, and I always kind of smile when I talk to these people and I think to myself, you know, good luck controlling people getting taken advantage of in the church to a certain extent. I'm not talking about like gross being taken advantage of, but, but just if you're a Christian and you're actually living for Jesus, you're gonna run the risk of people taking advantage of you, right? Because you're gonna be generous. And that's okay, because we follow a guy who was taken advantage of by all of us, right? And so we live, we live into generosity and community. Well, the reason that Paul writes this in this passage is he says, you know what? After you've been transformed, after you've come to know Jesus, after you're living into your faith, you need to start working honestly with your hands. Once you've received an abundance from the people of God, it's time to turn around and start serving. 
We have this, this functional idea of the operation of the church in North America that is very country club-esque in the sense that I come, I give money, and then I have in some ways done my time or my penance. And that is an unhealthy perspective of the church. The church is a dynamic relational community. It's not a transactional community, you know? And, and we in the church, uh, we, we used to be an institution that defined what care for the world looks like. Many of your hospitals in North America, they have, they have church names that are associated with them, right? Um, soup kitchens. The Church of the Nazarene was born in a time where it felt that Protestantism wasn't taking care of the world as they ought. And so they were, they, they were developed, the early Church of the Nazarene developed around missions, around caring for others, you know? But somehow, somehow over time, particularly in the church in North America, we lost our way and started trying to control what generosity looks like. I had a, um, I had a conversation with a good Christian businessman uh, last year. Uh, one of the things that I um, help lead around here is the Thanksgiving dinner uh, and that happens at the Civic Center. And I had a conversation with a good Christian businessman. Last year, he called me and he said, Jonathan, I hate what you guys do with the Thanksgiving dinner. I hate it. I said, well, that's a new one. You know, continue. He says it just, it, just, it just encourages people to just continue to receive handouts and not have to work hard. It's terrible. It was one of those moments where I didn't, I just, I don't know if it was the day that I felt so beat down I didn't want to, you know, respond. But I did think to myself, you know what? The perspective, that person's perspective on the Thanksgiving dinner is probably also indicative of his perspective on communion. That in some ways he's entitled to the table of the Lord to receive from Jesus the body and the blood. You know, and in some ways other people aren't because of their economic status. Did you know that in the church, Paul teaches that we're not divided based on our economic status, that everyone has an equal footing at the table? And when we bring people to a table at the church, when we come to the Lord's table, particularly at communion, we are all on the same page. There will be mooches in the church in perpetuity, okay? We are called to be people of generosity on the one hand. But, but, for you individually, I'm not talking about everybody else now, I'm just talking about you. I think the question is, what are you, how are you working honestly with your hands in the church? With what you have received, what are you doing? How are you giving how are you shaping and defining the community of the people of God? That was a great plug for youth group volunteers, by the way. Okay. Number four, do not let evil come out of your mouth, Paul says. James gives a great piece on the mouth. You need to read the book of James. Uh, you know, Martin Luther in the Reformation pitted Paul against James, but I don't know that James and Paul could agree more on one particular thing than how our mouth ought to be used. Paul says, do not let evil come out of your mouth. And in this time of, in this time of excess of information and misconstrual of information and misinformation, I don't know that evil for us is always just saying mean things. I think that evil can look like participating in conversations that we're where we're talking about things we don't even really know what we're talking about. Uh, I don't know about you, but over the last year and a half or two years, I've had many conversations I had no business having. 
talking about things and opinions that I felt very strongly about, but at the end of the day, I don't really know that I had any source of verifiable truth on those matters. You know, it's one of the things God's been doing in me in this year, been pruning me. He's been calling me to be precise in my speech. There's this old proverb where words are in excess, evil is abundant, and I believe that that's the truth. We need to be people that do not speak evil. And it's directly connected to number one, to telling the truth. Do not let evil come out of your mouth. We need to be precise in the way that we're speaking. We need to say what we mean. And maybe not say any more. Right? Number five, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. A month or so ago, I dedicated some children and I had someone come up to me afterwards and ask the question, you know, Jonathan, you, when you pray for babies at baby dedication, you pray the prayer of David. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he prays that famous prayer, take not your Holy Spirit from me, right? A man who had sinned, he prays this. And the, the individual said to me, you know, you at, at baby dedications, you pray over these children that God would not take his Holy Spirit from them. Do you actually believe that that could happen? That God could actually remove his spirit from someone? And part of the answer to that question is no. And part of the answer to the question, I'm anxious to answer. And part of, part of me wants to say no. And part of me is, is anxious to answer the question at all because I'm not God. <laughs> I only have the scriptural text, you know. But it is interesting that Paul says here, he warns the church not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In another place, he says, do not quench the spirit. And in another place in the New Testament, Jesus says that the unpardonable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does all of this mean? I don't know that I'm gonna be able to give you an in-depth analysis of all of it, but there is this sense in the New Testament that, we, that the Holy Spirit is our, is our legal counsel from heaven. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit is nudging us. And the worst thing that we can do as followers of Christ is to ignore the nudging of the Spirit when the Spirit is nudging us to do something or to say something or to speak something. And in a Christian community, we desperately need each of us following the nudges of the Spirit. Some of the greatest synergy that happens in the, in the people of God, in the church, is when different people at different places start following nudges and all of a sudden they find themselves working together. They're like, and they start sharing stories about the way that, hey, I see you're doing the same thing I'm doing. What's, what's going on? Well, actually, I was, it was just a nudge. I was just following an urge. Oh, that's so crazy. Me too, right? God speaks in ways and brings us together. So there, there are two elements of this, of this uh, uh, not, gr not grieving the Holy Spirit. You need to listen to the Spirit that you might be working in tandem with what God's doing in the church. But also we believe that the Holy Spirit, the, rela the relationship with the Holy Spirit is exactly that. It is a relationship. And in a relationship, if, when you stop listening to the voice of your partner, when you, start listening to the, start, when you stop listening to the voice of your team, when you stop listening to the voice of others, you become isolated. And it's oftentimes in isolation that we sin. It's oftentimes when we're not listening to others that are listening to the voice of the Spirit that we 
make our own decisions and we stray from God. David, in the story of straying from Bathsheba, David is the king who is the man after God's own heart. Yet how in the world does he find himself in a situation in which he murders a man and commits adultery? I don't like the idea that God's spirit is just hovering with him the whole time, just endorsing what's going on. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's problematic theology. I realize it may be problematic to think, well, there's the Holy Spirit, you know, would the Holy Spirit take himself from me? I realize that's scary and that may produce some sort of, you know, insecurity in faith. But I do, I do wish for the people of God that we had a little bit more insecurity and reverence for our relationship with God than just this, you know, hold fast eternal security idea where like I pray to prayer and so I can just be indifferent about how I live my life or how much in conversation I am with the spirit. Paul says for Christian community to work, we cannot grieve the Holy Spirit. And so I continually pray for children and for all of you and for myself. Oh God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Speak to me, lead me, guide me. The last thing that Paul says in this passage, number six, He says, be forgiving to one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. One of the hardest things about being a pastor in this time is listening to people in the congregation tell stories about how other people in the congregation have hurt them. One of the the worst conversations to have is the conversation of, you know, should I stay or should they stay? That's the wrong conversation. Unfortunately, we live in a consumer culture of church where if I get my feathers ruffled enough, I will just go to the other church across town. And we just see this happening all over. You know, um, some of you are new because you left your community. It's nice to see you this week. You may hear the spirit of God saying, you know what? This is my first week at Lima community and my last week because I got to go back peace be with you. Sincerely. Um, We're not necessarily interested in church growth via the entertainment factor. (laughs) You know, we we gotta, we gotta, we gotta heal our relationships, you know. And I know in this time, in this season, God has been working on my own heart about forgiving people, letting things go. The voice of Jesus on the cross is just perpetually in my mind. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Part of the reason people don't know what they're doing right now, folks, is because we've lost our ability to speak the truth. We don't know what the truth is. We're very confused. As Jesus looked on the masses of his own time, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's us. And the only way that we're going to find our way, the only way we're going to find our way is to be convinced that we are members of each other to be convinced that we need each other and allow that understanding to motivate us to forgive each other, to allow that understanding to motivate us to speak gently the truth to one another, right? We're gonna do something radical today and very uncomfortable. I want you to stand up. Um. Many of you may know that a Pastor Brad just went on sabbatical like two days ago, and he's a germaphobe. I want you to do me a favor. We're gonna do something that we've not done in a very, very long time here. I want you to grab the hand of the person next to you. (gasps) 
I want you to know that the facilities team has told me that there's plenty of hand sanitizer in the lobby afterwards. Do not touch your face or your mouth or your nose. Just hands. If you need to scratch your, your nose, find your spouse and do one of these. Okay, before you get out there. Is this kind of weird? Grabbing the hands of the person next to us. What if we were more concerned with these bonds than we were with catching germs? I'm not trying to like dis science or medicine or something, but we've got relational issues in the church, you know? We need to grab onto each other. We need to grab onto each other. And sometimes physically grabbing onto somebody is good because it gets their attention. It helps them know that you're present and you're there. There's some people maybe you haven't embraced for a long time that it's about time you embrace. We desperately need each other. We are bound up in one another. We are members of one another. Let us not forget that in these days. Lord Jesus, we need your presence among us. Would you help us to be the church? Would you help us to be one? Make us one as you are one. Mold us and bond us together in perfect unity, we pray. Amen. Okay, you can let go. Do not touch your face. Do not touch your mouth or your nose, okay? There's hand sanitizer out there. When you go into the bathroom to wash your hands, use your rump, hit the door, right? Wash your hands. God bless you. Go in peace. Go in the joy of the Lord today. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.